Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 14, beginning at the 22nd verse. That's found in your pew Bibles on page 820. Matthew 14, beginning at verse 22. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Immediately he, meaning Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is inerrant, it is perfect. It says exactly what you designed it to say. And so Lord, I pray that you would guard the thoughts of my heart and the words of my mouth that they would only follow after what you want your people to hear this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give us undistracted minds, uh, that we would be able to pay attention to your word, and Holy Spirit, we need you to write your word on our hearts that we would be a people transformed as we hear your word proclaimed. So Lord, we ask all these things for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. So I am uh, new here at 10th, relatively new, not broken in yet, and um, if you've heard me preach the couple of times I've preached at the evening service, I've, I've shared a couple of things about myself. One is that I have a lot of plants. I have the biggest plants in the church. So if you're a plant lover, you wanna see big plants, come to my office. But the other thing I've shared is that I am a bit of a weather geek. And you might have said, well, I've known you were a geek, but I didn't know you were a weather geek. But it's true. Uh, I'm not sure when it started, but I've always been kind of unusually fascinated by the weather. And living in or around Philadelphia for most of my life, I've been able to at least witness, if not be directly in the path of, several bad storms or, or memorable weather events. So I remember the, the blizzard of 77 and the blizzard, blizzard of 78. Uh, I remember uh, in 1982, I think it was in February of 1982, Philadelphia hit its all-time low temperature of eight degrees below zero. Um, 
We actually had to go to school when it was that cold. I remember waiting for the bus with 50 below zero wind chills, something that would be considered uh, child abuse today. <laughs> I remember the ice storm of 94 and the blizzard of 95 that brought three feet of snow. Uh, I remember um, that hurricane whose name I can't remember from 1985, I remember Superstorm Sandy. So I, th there have been a bunch of neat weather phenomena that I've been a part of, and I just love to watch on my weather app when a storm near us undergoes bombogenesis. And if you wanna know what bombogenesis is, talk with me afterwards, I'll be glad to explain it. Or I'm sure my wife and daughter can explain it as well because I've explained it to them many times. <laughs> so all that said, with the exception of wanting to get into the car and chase after the one tornado I actually saw, uh, an idea immediately vetoed by my wife, Susan, uh, who was at that moment proved to be the person in the marriage with the greater common sense, I usually watch storms from a safe distance, just as a hobby. But Jesus' disciples, rather, in today's passage, don't have the leisure of just watching a storm unfold from a distance. As a matter of fact, you could say that the storm is chasing them, or rather, is right on top of them. And so, with the theme of storms, we'll look at this passage using three points. The first is Jesus sent his disciples into the storm. The second is Jesus meets his disciples in the storm. And the third is Jesus meets us in the storms of our lives. So the first point, Jesus sent his disciples into the storm. So what do we know about this storm? Well, first of all, with due respect to any of you who might be actual meteorologists, the conditions the disciples experienced may not have been due to a storm at all. When we think about what a, what a storm is, we often think of a low pressure system with um, lightning and thunder and rain and uh, wind. But the Sea of Galilee is kind of an, an anomaly. It's a freshwater lake that is the lowest freshwater lake of any uh, freshwater body of water in the world. And it's surrounded by tall hills on any side. And so what happens often, especially in the evening and at night, is winds will come down those mountains into the sea and cause uh, very strong winds and the, the kinds of conditions that the disciples very likely experienced. My point is, all we know from the perspective of the gospel writers Matthew, Mark, and John who record this event is that there was a persistent strong headwind probably from the west or the southwest into which the disciples were rowing. And the waves created by the wind, according to Matthew, were beating the boat, making it very difficult for the disciples to make any progress at all. So it kind of begs the question, why were the disciples even out there? So late in the night, in the midst of these stormy conditions. After all, many of the disciples were experienced fishermen, and so we assume that they would know the signs of approaching bad weather, and that if they saw anything unusual on the horizon, they would have just not left uh, because they weren't certain that they could arrive safely. 
But we also know that the disciples set out before dark, presumably with sufficient time to make it to their destination before nightfall. And the reason for that quite simply is in pre-modern times, uh, it was very difficult to navigate at night, especially if there were clouds because you didn't have any markers on the water uh, other than the stars to know where you were going. What else do we know? Well, we know that the disciples were starting out near Bethsaida, near the, the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, and they were instructed by Jesus to go to the other side of the lake in verse 22. That meant that they were supposed to wind up somewhere near the town of Gennesaret on the northwestern coast of the lake. So ordinarily, that would be about a five-mile trip, and it would take about two hours if the weather conditions were favorable. So we can assume that the disciples left Bethsaida around 6 p.m. and planned to arrive in Gennesaret sometime around 8. But that didn't happen. This trip uh, is the trip that never ends. Matthew tells us that it wasn't until the fourth watch of the night, sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., when Jesus met up with the weary disciples on the boat. By this time, after several hours of futile effort to make it to their destination, the disciples were only halfway to Gennesaret. And I'm guessing they were pretty worn out, pretty scared, and pretty weary. But again, why were they there? Verse 22 tells us Jesus made them get into the boat and go before him to the other side of the lake. The New Testament is written in Greek, and that's used, uh, the, the verb rather in Greek that's used to explain Jesus making the disciples leave in the boat is a very strong verb. It means literally to force someone or compel someone to do something. It's not a verb that is used frequently in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, one of the only other places it's found in the New Testament is in the book of Acts, where the apostle Paul who before his conversion was actually a persecutor of the church, recounted how prior to his conversion, he used to try to force Christians to blaspheme Jesus by torturing them. And so it's that sense of compelling, of forcing someone under duress to do something that Jesus puts the disciples in the boat and sends them to the other side of the lake. But why would he have done that? Well, all of scripture is connected and today's passage is very easily connected to the passage we looked at last Sunday, which was where Jesus fed uh, the crowd of more than 5,000 uh, on the hillside near Bethsaida. Jesus, uh, John's rather account of the gospel, which often provides details not seen in the other gospel writers' accounts, tells us uh, that this happened immediately following that miracle. John records, beginning in John 6, 14, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's the, the commentary after the fact that John provides on the feeding of the 5,000. Evidently, some in the crowd suspected that Jesus was the prophet promised all the way back in Deuteronomy, the one who would be like Moses 
and like the historic Moses would set God's people free from the oppression of foreign rulers, in this case, the Romans. Moses led uh, God's people out of Egypt, and in this case, the uh, Jews of Jesus' time were looking for freedom from the oppression that they were experiencing under the rule of Rome. And more than one commentator suggests that the reason Jesus so hastily compelled the disciples to get into the boat and leave was that they were being seduced by the crowd's enthusiasm to make Jesus king and that he wanted to protect them from cooperating with the crowd in order to make that happen. This makes a lot of sense since we know from other instances in the gospels that Jesus' disciples often struggled with with the nature of Jesus' kingdom and anticipated along with many others that he would rise up and assume an earthly throne. He would be an earthly Messiah. But Jesus' kingdom was never meant to be just earthly. It's an eternal kingdom, not of this world, as Jesus himself tells Pilate in John 18. And so this may have been the reason Jesus sent his disciples away so forcefully and so hurriedly. And it may have also been the reason that Jesus went up by himself to pray, as we read in verse 23. Perhaps he was praying for himself, that Satan's third temptation from Matthew 4 to take control over the kingdoms of the world without following the Father's will and going to the cross, that that temptation would pass from him. But perhaps he was also praying for his disciples. The Gospel writer Mark also gives us some additional information about Jesus coming to the disciples on the lake after sending them away. In Mark 6, 51 and 52, we read that the disciples were utterly astounded at the events that take place on the lake when they see Jesus coming to him because, Mark says, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Again, the connection between the events on the sea and the events that took place a few hours earlier with the miraculous multiplication of the loaves and fishes. In other words, seeing Jesus perform this miracle of multiplying five small barley loaves and two small fish to feed thousands and thousands of people would have given the disciples a view into Jesus' divine nature and it should have shown them that he really was the son of God. After all, who else could do this? But it didn't. As Mark points out, they still didn't get it. Their hearts were hardened. Their spiritual eyes were closed. They didn't see the evidence of who Jesus was. And so Jesus forces his disciples into a storm and quite likely prays for them to have their spiritual eyes opened and their hearts softened to see who he is. So let's step back from a moment from the historic events that we're reading about now and bring this into the present. Does it ever feel as though Jesus has forced you into a storm. That storm could look like any number of things, but they probably all bring us to the same place where the disciples found themselves in this account, stuck, tired out, completely unable to get unstuck in their own strength. Maybe the storm for you looks like a difficult relationship, 
a challenging work situation, a chronic health problem, or something else. But if it's anything like the storm the disciples faced in the boat that night, Jesus hasn't put you there in order to, uh, in order for you rather, to find your own way out using your own strength or cleverness. It's not a puzzle to be solved. It's not an escape room to be mastered. It's a storm which has you trapped and exhausted and at the end of yourself, just like the disciples. They weren't going anywhere until they got help from a source outside of themselves. And if you're in a storm like that, you won't go anywhere in your own strength either. As a matter of fact, trying to get out of the storm in your own strength is probably just going to get you more and more stuck. If you feel stuck, it's not because you're not trying hard enough. It's because the answer simply isn't you. Just as it is for the disciples, the answer for you and me is Jesus. That brings us to our second point, Jesus meets the disciples in the storm. So Jesus knew exactly where to find the disciples in the dark on the sea. And don't you think that the reason he knew exactly where they were, because at this point they were at least a couple of miles away, it was dark, there was no way that Jesus humanly could have seen them, But don't you think the reason he knew where they were and what state they would be in was because he was the one who put them there in the first place? And I think this should be a comfort to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he doesn't abandon us in times of suffering but rather sees us and knows us exactly where we are and how we're feeling. We're never alone. We have an elder brother who looks out for us in love And just as the Lord promised Joshua in Joshua 1 and broadens this promise to all believers in Hebrews 13, he will never leave us or forsake us. But then we have this unusual aspect of the story in verses 25 and 26 when Jesus approaches the disciples in the boat by walking on the sea. Now, the disciples are already having a tough night. And I, I think when they see this figure, this, this humanoid figure moving toward them on the water, they assume it's something that's meant to harm them. They, they believe it's a ghost or an evil spirit. The, the word in Greek uh, is phantasma, which is the word from which uh, we get our word phantom. In the ancient world, it was believed that the sea was the source of chaos and a dwelling place of evil spirits. There are even several places where the writers of scriptures, uh, the writers of scripture rather, pick up on this theme and use it to show that the deep and turbulent waters of the sea is a place of judgment and death and despair. And as far as we know, Jesus had never walked on water before. So the disciples are completely taken aback when they see this figure moving toward them in the dark, doing something very supernatural and coming straight for them. But Jesus isn't coming to the disciples in judgment or in anger. He's not coming to harm them. He's coming to them in love. His first words to them are in verse 27, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. 
Let's look at Jesus' words for a moment. Jesus' comforting words, take heart or, or don't worry and do not be afraid, are comforting and self-explanatory. And Matthew tells us in verse 26 that the disciples are utterly terrified. And the first thing you wanna do in a situation where someone is panicking is to try to de-escalate the situation through reassuring them. And that's what Jesus was doing here. But it's his words, it is I, that I'd like us to camp out with for a moment. On the one hand, Jesus' self-identification was another means of comforting the disciples because he was explaining to them, hey, don't worry, it, it's me, look. And so disclosing his identity was meant to help them ground themselves in reality rather than being given into their own fears. But on the other hand, Jesus says, it is I. And the Greek words translated, it is I, are ego eimi. And if that doesn't sound familiar, perhaps you'll recognize how they are usually translated into English when they appear elsewhere in scripture. It's not, it is I, it's I am, the personal name of God. These are the same words that God spoke to Moses when Moses asked whom he should identify as the one who sent him to Pharaoh. They're the same words that Jesus spoke to the Jews in the temple as recorded in John 8. And they were so powerful that the Jews tried to kill him for saying that he was God. And they're the same words that Jesus spoke to the temple guards who came to arrest him in Gethsemane. And when he spoke them, the men fell backward to the ground. That's how powerful even the name of God is, that it makes us react strongly. When Jesus says, it is I, he probably doesn't speak those words in Greek because Jesus probably spoke in Aramaic, a language very similar to Hebrew, and he would have probably said, the word which we transliterate into the proper name of God, and that is Yahweh. He would have said Yahweh. He would have said, I am the son of God. That's how I multiplied the loaves and fish. That's how I walked to you on the water. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I have no beginning and no end. I am Yahweh. And so for Jesus to walk literally on the back of the water to the disciples is a sign of dominance and control, not only over the natural world, but since the sea was seen as a place of chaos and threat, for Jesus to be walking on its back and mastering it is a sign that he owns it, that he can control it, that it has no destructive power over him. So what happens next? In verse 28, Peter says to the Lord, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. You just gotta love Peter. He, he has some faith. And in verse 29, we read that Peter gets out of the boat and walks toward Jesus on the water. And in doing that, Peter becomes just the second person in human history to do that. And I would offer here that the most astonishing part of this account is not that Jesus walked on the water, 
He, he after all is the son of God and it, it would be a very small thing indeed for him to do that. The most astonishing thing is that Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water. You know, we often criticize Peter for being brash and impulsive, but here he demonstrates faith that has rarely been seen among men, that he would leave the relative safety of his boat and walk to Jesus on the water is nothing short of remarkable. And I dare say that if we each had that much faith, we would see much more kingdom fruit in our ministry as a church. I would also say that Peter doing this, Peter stepping out of the boat, Peter walking toward the Lord was a tremendous testimony to the other disciples in the boat because faith begets faith. When we see someone take a step in faith, when we hear someone say something about how the Lord has worked in their lives, that encourages us to believe the same things and to believe that the Lord can work similarly in our circumstances. And I think that this very act of Peter stepping out of the boat and walking on the water toward the Lord is something which resulted in the worship that took place just a few minutes later when all of the disciples say, truly you are the Son of God. But things don't go perfectly for Peter. We read in verse 30 that Peter saw the wind and he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him and pulled him up out of the water. Peter walking on the water toward Jesus realizes that the physics of this just don't add up. He's doing something that a human being should not be able to do. The wind and the waves are reality after all, not the power of God. The wind and waves are the means of your destruction, Peter. What hope do you have? But again, Peter shows incredible faith and cries out, Lord, save me. Even though he realizes that his own faith is insufficient, he still trusts that the Lord is able to pull him up and keep him from being pulled under. And Jesus does that because he is able and because he loves Peter. Experiencing all of this, Jesus walking in the water, Peter using the power given him by Jesus to supernaturally command the physical world and experiencing the miraculous multiplication of the loaves and fish just hours before move the disciples to worship Jesus and to acclaim in verse 33, truly you are the son of God. All that the disciples have heard and seen, all that they have experienced over the last two plus years leads them to this, to, to really the only reasonable conclusion that Jesus truly is the Christ, the son of the living God. And in acclaiming Jesus as the son of God, the disciples provide a unique and fitting response, kind of a refrain to Jesus' earlier statement of I am. It's as though they repeat it back to him as an anthem of worship. I am, you are the son of God. Finally, our third point, Jesus delivers us from the storms of our lives. 
What can we take away from this demonstration of Jesus' authority and power? How does this story help us in the storms that we face? Well, as we looked at earlier, there are storms that we face regularly as well. And yes, Jesus is the one who has us there. Perhaps we find ourselves in those storms as the result of our own sin or our own lack of obedience to God's will. But maybe there's no reason that we can easily assign for where this storm came from or why we're in it. Perhaps the storm seems to come out of nowhere for no reason. Perhaps just like the disciples in the boat, we're trying to get from point A to point B and something is preventing us from doing that. The reality is that Jesus is sovereignly over us in love, no matter the circumstances we face or how hopeless or confusing they might seem. At a basic level, the goal of every storm is for us to exclaim in unison with the weary disciples, yes, Jesus, truly you are the Son of God. But what are the practical ways for us to find comfort in Jesus' sovereignty. Here are four as we wrap up. First, remember Jesus' faithfulness. Even in his own temptation, Jesus was faithful. Going back to Matthew 4, we read that Satan tempted Jesus multiple times, but Jesus remained faithful to his Father. The writer of Hebrews tells us later, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. If Jesus continued to remain faithful to his Father and to us, even in the moments of his greatest trial, won't he remain faithful to us even after his resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand in glory? Doesn't he love us that much that he hears our cries, that he sees us in our weakness, that he's very aware of the storms that he has us in? and that he is there to minister to us. Jesus loves us, and he will never turn from those who belong to him. That's the first application. Secondly, pursue and take part in the ordinary means of grace. And by that I mean things like prayer, reading scripture, gathering together in fellowship, supporting and encouraging one another, and so on. Peter, The the same Peter who asked the Lord to call him to walk on the water wrote uh, about 25 years later, he's saying this, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another in order that in everything God may be glorified in Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's 1 Peter 4, verses 8 through 11. 
And I can't help but think that as Peter was writing this to Christians in the early church who were about to undergo tremendous persecution at the hands of the Roman government, that he thought back to that experience he had with Jesus on the lake 25 years earlier and remembered that glory and dominion do belong to the God who is able to walk on water and multiply loaves and fishes and pull poor sinking people out of the water and save them from drowning. He calls us to show these ordinary means of grace to one another. He calls us to build one another up, support one another, encourage one another, so that we would be a people who testify to God's goodness and faithfulness even in the midst of crisis. And again, we as a church are in the middle of, of that storm right now. We're, we're in the middle of a crisis as we deal with the events of the last several months. What kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be a church who believes that Jesus has us here for a reason? and that he is faithful to watch over us and provide for us and give us everything we need in order to glorify him even during this hard time. This hard time isn't something to be avoided. Just like the disciples trying to avoid it or get out of it in our own strength is just going to keep us stuck. Pursuing the Lord in faith and in prayer is what he invites us to do. Third, when we find ourselves in the midst of the storms of life, don't be ashamed to cry out and ask God to show himself in the midst of darkness. Crying out is not a lack of faith, it's a demonstration of faith. It says to to Satan, I may not be able to defeat you on my own, but my elder brother Jesus already has. It's like that episode in Joshua where Joshua has cornered the five kings of the Amorites in a cave and calls the elders of Israel who have been afraid to fight these men in battle to the cave. He makes the kings lie down and he tells the elders one by one to put their feet on the king's necks. The kings are still alive, the kings still realize what's happening. But again, just like Jesus was walking on the water, uh, Jesus walking on the water rather was a sign of dominance over the, the sea. The elders of Israel putting their feet on the neck of the king who had harassed them was a sign of dominance and victory as well. And that is what the Lord calls us to exercise in the trials we face. The trials we face can't utterly undo us because Jesus has saved us. And so he calls us to not be afraid of the circumstances, to not quake in front of Satan, but rather in faith to put our foot on Satan's neck and to say, Jesus has won. Fourth, and finally, reach out to encourage your brothers and sisters Meet them in the storms that they find themselves in and encourage their faith. As I said earlier on, faith begets 
faith. We're called to build one another up. We're called to speak words of hope and truth to one another in the midst of our circumstances, not to try to troubleshoot and get one another out of trouble. What difference would it make if when you see a brother or sister going through a storm in their lives, that you would just be present with them? That you would listen to them, that you would incarnate the love of God by being present with them, and that you would testify to God's faithfulness and goodness in their lives. Instead of trying to come up with a five-point plan to get them out of the mess they're in, what if you just had one point to Jesus? What difference would that make, and how would that glorify God? Brothers and sisters, this is a hard thing to listen to. It's a hard thing to do. Because we're in the midst of a storm, we instinctively do what the disciples did. Get frustrated, get angry, get scared. But we have an invitation because Jesus is the master of the storm. Jesus is the master of all of creation. The invitation is to hope not in our ability, but in his. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he uh, has defeated sin and death on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that you are putting all things under his feet. Lord, show us where to cooperate uh, with you in that process. Show us, Lord, how to bring the, the cares and concerns that we have, the storms of our lives to you through crying out and asking Jesus to meet us in the midst of those times. Lord, I pray that we would be transformed as we see him show up and as we are strengthened. Lord, give us grace that we would then go and strengthen our brothers and sisters, that you would be glorified in this church and in our lives. All this we ask in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.